0: Welcome to the best of Making Sense. This is Sam Harris. In this series, we re-air some of the most popular episodes of the Making Sense podcast. These are conversations that we think you'll find just as relevant today as when they were originally released. Today I'm speaking with Darren Brown. Darren, as many of you know, is a fantastic magician. He calls himself a psychological illusionist. Which is to say that the effects he achieves really are at the level of manipulating the behavior of his subjects. Uh, He uses hypnosis and other forms of suggestion. Uh, He creates the most elaborate ruses by which to manipulate people's expectations and assumptions. If you've seen any of his television specials, you'll know that he puts people in situations where Literally everyone around them is an actor who's in on the gag and people just have no way of understanding what is happening to them. And so he can drive them to do things that are really astonishing. Uh, In fact, if you haven't seen any of Darren's work, I would strongly encourage you to pause this podcast and go on YouTube and watch some of the many fragments of his specials that you can find there. Or better yet, go on Netflix and watch his most recent one, Sacrifice, or Miracle Before That, or The Push. Uh, We talk about all of these, and you'll certainly get the gist of our conversation if you haven't seen his work, but you'll enjoy it much more if you have, because it really is hard to exaggerate how ambitious these changes in people's behavior are and how successful Darren is in producing them. It really is amazing. Anyway, we talk about his career as an illusionist, his reliance on hypnosis and other forms of suggestion and manipulation. Uh, We talk a little bit about his book, Happy, where he goes into the value he's drawn from Stoic philosophy and his other thoughts on how to live a good life. Anyway, Darren is a very thoughtful, interesting, uh, and extraordinarily nice person, and it was a great pleasure to sit down with him. So. I hope you enjoy his company as much as I did. And now I bring you Darren Brown. I am here with Darren Brown. Hi. Darren, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, it's just so exciting. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, really, it's a treat. I've known I had to get you on the podcast for a very long time because you're quite literally one of my most requested guests and- Really? Yeah, but it's never come together and then it always seemed that there was a some prospect of you coming to the states but you know you and i connected in london recently when i had that event with jordan peterson mm-hmm. but we didn't record there but now you are in and then we bonded over America. old fashions yes afterwards yeah. that was nice that's a, an appropriate way to bond so there are quite literally too many things to talk about There's a ton that we can get into let's start with how you describe yourself as a Psychological illusionist. Yeah. What are you doing as a magician? I mean, there's there's so many. You do many things that I think a lot of people don't know about. But obviously, we're going to be talking about your recent specials and your and your magic. But how do you describe your approach to magic?
1: Yeah, I I don't know. I I mean, even that term, psychological illusionist, I came up with in a panic when I was asked right at the start of my career what it is what it is that I do. I started off as a hypnotist. When I was I studied law and German at university in Bristol mm. in England did you
0: actually get a degree as a lawyer i did or? I, I oh.
1: didn't want to be a lawyer or a German mm. um, think so about I, what
0: a good lawyer you could be with your skills now though well you, yeah <laughs> i don't
1: know I, it's such a it's a big it just, that was it was very little interest really so yeah. i um but I got the degree but but in my first year I saw a hypnotist perform and I, I so I started off with that and uh, I bought borrowed, stole books I could find on it. I uh, I was the guy at university who could hypnotize you, so I had lots of people turning up to be hypnotized. So, that so was... did,
0: you, did you formally study it in a psychology department? No, or... no, 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 not
1: at all. It was just, just self-taught. I had huh. a couple of, I remember a, a couple of seminal moments. I had a, I, I would often, people would come over and I'd hypnotize them and I'd say, if you come back, if I click my fingers and tell you... If I click my fingers, you'll go straight back to sleep. So it would save time, right, if they came back the next week and right. wanted to try something else. And I remember this guy coming around, who I presumed I'd seen before, and I said, okay, sit down, look at me, and I clicked my fingers, and I said, sleep. And he went back into this... What I presumed was back into this trance state, whatever that is. Anyway, and then we did a few things, and then afterwards, we spoke, and he hadn't been... he hadn't, I'd never met him before. So I had this moment of, well, I... How did you know to respond to me clicking my fingers and saying sleep? And I realised sort of at that point that so much of it depended not on these long s- sort of scripts that I was learning and that that side of technique, but just kind of my confidence in the moment and their own bewilderment, perhaps, obviously their own suggestibility. So things like that were taught me a lot. And then I—it's uh, a—it's a difficult way of earning a living. And I was I was graduating and. I uh, was just starting to scrape a living together, so I, I did more magic, like close-up magic, that kind of thing. But the psychological stuff interested me more—the suggestion-based stuff.
0: So, did you learn it from books, or did you actually have a teacher who was a hypnotist? I
1: no, I didn't. I, I continued learning the hypnosis from from books. This was pre, like the days of there were no YouTube, YouTube videos. No, no, nothing. This was like nineteen thirty-five, yeah. and uh, I ended up doing a lot more magic, but I, I found the, the mind reading plots more interesting than, you know, making someone's card disappear. And so it, it, mentalism, mentalism is the technical name for it. Well, I, so I ended up, I wrote a couple of books for magicians. I was earning a living in Bristol, this, this city in the west of England, going around, you know, tables in restaurants and doing people's parties. And then I got a phone call from this TV production company that were looking for someone that did mind-reading. And there were really only, I could only think of like four or five people in the country that did it.
0: Mentalism, was that it esoteric? Was, huh. Yeah,
1: just no one really, no one, it just wasn't very commercial. and mm. uh, Well, it's, it's,
0: to give people a sense, many people will be familiar with your work, but just give an example of the kind of thing a mentalist like well, yourself does on stage with people.
1: It's, it's sort of, it's magic with a mind-reading Plot essentially, but I mean I suppose someone that passes themselves off as psychic could be technically a mentalist, so there's a wide range because I said not that many people do it, so there's kind of a wide range of what people do when they do it. now there's a lot more of them, and that's probably partly because I was making it popular in the in the u k. so if you were a young magician, I guess you know growing up and I was you know a kind of a role model, I suppose, for some, so there's a lot more mentalists now, but it was the the we were very few and far between before
0: do your powers of mentalism extend to dogs? And you get it that. does sound like yeah. a dog in the background. Yeah, right. I think it's someone moving
1: plates or cutlery. Oh, okay. It might be moving, right. but it does well, sound like a dog. Maybe I just,
0: that's a powerful suggestion I just gave you, that it's a dog.
1: <laughs> so that was that. And then I, yeah, I, but now I, um, essentially at its heart, a magician is just saying, look at me, aren't I clever? That is sort of, that's the only subtext. So as I grew up, I sort of grew out of that initial urge and the desire for uh, the sort of controlling thing, which hypnosis is, you know, is, Certainly ticks that box if you mm. if you're insecure and those things
0: are important to you, which I was. Did you ever go down the path of hypnosis as therapy? As to... therapy,
1: I thought about it. I think ultimately, I didn't really want to sit
0: and get in there with people's problems, yeah. people's problems day after yeah. day. Now,
1: I mean, now I find not so much hypnotherapy, but psychotherapy. I find fascinating that world. I do find I sort of mm. loved it. Part of me would love to do that, but no, I sort of the the, the performing came together in such a way that I had to kind of at some point choose and go you know I'll concentrate on this but now I it's quite a I mean I'm not very well known in the States at all but in in the UK I kind of do a variety of things I I do stage shows every year that are like old-fashioned magic shows really again with kind of a you know mind reading sort of feel to them and uh, I do these TV shows now on Netflix which are Again, they're very different, but sort of, what I've done is I've tried to take a step back and I, I kind of figured that it's dramatically more interesting if you're watching a real person go through a real situation. So the deception is now all out on the surface. So you, as a viewer, you're invited into the deception right. and it's, the deception is is happening on somebody that's going through something they don't right. Like well, I want to talk about several mm-hmm.
0: of your specials in, in detail, but before we get there, let's just talk for a second about hypnosis. So mm. it's a, hypnosis is a topic that isn't often touched. I don't think it came up once while I got a PhD in neuroscience, right? I'm, right. Sure, I'm sure there's a there's been some neuroscientific work done on hypnosis. The only time I touched it as a topic academically, I, it was freshman year at Stanford, where I think Stanford still has the scale of hypnotic susceptibility I think yeah I think it it, predates my time there but I remember being tested on this scale because they were looking for good and and bad subjects to do research and which were you I think it was a 10 point scale and I think I was a 9 on the 10 so I, I was on that side of the tail and then I remember going through these various exercises and the experience that proved to me that this wasn't just total bullshit that this there was something to this was we were regressed to how was it put they asked us to imagine that we are eight years old i think or seven years old and sign our names mm. and without any conscious forethought the script that came out of my signing was just this bubbly childlike script that was totally familiar to me as something the way i would have written my name as a seven-year-old and it was not at all the way i wrote my name as a 18-year-old, and then he asked, put the, the year, and I remember marveling at the fact that without any conscious arithmetic, you know, I was putting down the yeah. right year for yeah. my, you know, that, that Did age. Did you
1: ever compare the handwriting, you know, if it was actually?
0: I don't remember going back and finding a sample of my handwriting if I could have, but it was just the spitting image of the kind of writing, yeah. and, and I just remember it feeling like an automaticity, that I was mm. not, you know, I wasn't gaming the system, you know, trying to impress myself with mm. hypnosis working. And I, I've spent no time studying it since, but it's one of these topics where I think you can talk to scientists who are still in doubt as to whether or not it's actually a bona fide phenomenon. And then it obviously connects to vaudevillian applications of it, which where, where <laughs> it seems appropriate to wonder whether there's A fraud associated with what you're seeing on stage. So what is your understanding of the reality of hypnosis as a psychological process that can be invoked on stage?
1: I used to do a, um, a, when I performed stage hypnosis, which I don't anymore, but I I try and find other ways of employing it. But I used to finish with saying that I'd make myself invisible so the subjects wouldn't be able to see me. And then say I'd, I'd float a chair around and they'd all, you know, scream and run around. And it was you know, a fun bit in the show. But then I often used to have questions and answers afterwards. And I remember once I, I got, say there were 10 guys, I got them up and said, well, what, what was your actual experience when I was saying I was invisible and mm. moving a chair around? What what were you actually experiencing? And there were some that were saying, well, you know, I, I, yeah, I was just felt like I should play along. But yeah, you were obviously just moving the chair around yourself. Then there were people that would say, well, I, I kind of, I knew you were doing it, but I had, just had to, emotionally, I could only react as if that thing was floating, even though, yeah, of course, when I think back as well, I mean, I, yeah, you were obviously there doing it, but I, I, I kind of was disregarding that. And a range of reactions right through to, there's no way you were moving that chair because that was, that was floating. I, you know, They were more happy to believe it was on wires than it was me. Now, I still don't know whether that whole discussion is colored by the fact that some people want to appear to be better subjects than others. But certainly, right. what is clear is that the range of experience is so varied. I always think of it as a sort of like an actor getting into a part. You, you can get totally emotionally lost in something. It doesn't mean that anything untoward is, is happening. Uh, I, I, well,
0: are you ever, have you experimented with giving people post hypnotic suggestions that they seem to be genuinely unaware of so that they're doing things that originate? in a truly unconscious space in their minds and you've you've got Yeah but because
1: you can never really climb into anyone's head to really know. I remember telling a, a, a friend of mine that he was he'd find himself invisible and he was really he was laughing. He was looking down and saying it's just like looking at a footage of like the carpet and, you know, I'm just it's like I'm looking out of a, a camera. I, I I think one of the most for me, one of the most interesting experiences of it was I did a show called um the assassin. So, Stephen Fry is right. going to get yeah, that. shot yeah. by this guy. And we had this sort of first part was just looking at hypnosis. What is it? What
0: are the limitations of it? So, this is a just give people yes. the yes, okay, the setup here. So, how is Stephen Fry going to get shot? Yes.
1: I throw these things <laughs> away. <'cause laughs> yeah. I'm kind of used to them. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, the, the show was actually looking at the claims made by Sahan Sahan over the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, him saying that he was hypnotized by the CIA. So, we kind of well, is it? If we take what his claims are, is that even feasible that that could happen, or is it just the stuff of you know just fiction right so as closely as we could, we kind of replicated his story and did it with a guy that didn't know that that was the plan for him. so we found a very highly suggestible guy, even more suggestible than you, I'm sure right. and
0: there was only one point on the scale if I recall only it, one that, guy <laughs> <Okay>.
1: <laughs> and uh The show begins with finding that guy from a sort of a big audience of of people who are volunteering and ends with him in a situation which he doesn't know is being filmed with a gun that he thinks is real, all the triggers going off, the polka dot dress and all these things that Sirhan Sirhan said the the CIA had used. And will he do it? Will he in that situation fire a gun which he believes is real at somebody and, and seemingly shoot them? But there was this really interesting bit at the beginning. So I've got these two clinical hypnotist psychologists with me as well and we did two tests one was the acid test which is where the where the notion and the phrase comes from where you have somebody hypnotized you give them what you've shown them is acid before they're hypnotized but actually it's just water and you say when you wake up and you get the signal you'll throw this acid in someone's face right so it's an interesting thing like if they if they're playing along at any level of course they're not going to do that they all did it but it's a TV studio. They know no one's really going to give them, you know, acid to do that. So part of the brain you get, part of them is gonna know this is right. this is safe. And that's fine. That's what we imagine they'd do. But then towards the end, we had this guy in an ice bath. And this was the guy that we used in the end. And we just had no idea if he was gonna do it or not. Either way, it was fine for the show. If he didn't do it, that was interesting. If he did do it, that was interesting. And he did very happily. He got in this ice bath and lay there and there was no it didn't seem they're actually they had a bet backstage, like a wager as to whether or not he'd do it. They thought he wouldn't do it. I had no idea. But that didn't seem to be the sort of thing that you could just play along. Yeah. Pretending on, not to yeah, find a game. Ju- exactly, cold. just kind yeah. of pretend not to uh, not to find that, you know, intensely painful. And that's one of the very like few moments that I've had of just being really surprised by it. The other thing that surprises me is, again, if, if it's just sort of a playing along, is behaviors that people wouldn't know to do that get shared across, say, an audience. So very often I'm I'm doing this with an audience of 2,000 people mm-hmm. and then walking out amongst those people that have responded who, say, are now standing, eyes closed, like, you know, head dropped down.
0: Right. In your special before, the most recent one, Miracle, Miracle you did yeah. this, right. Let's dive into some of what you're doing here mm-hmm. with the specials because it's not, there's hypnosis, which is this one... Specific activity of inducting someone into a state and Mm. leading them to do various things, uh, you know, post hypnotically. But you're also just playing with people's suggestibility a lot. You're pre screening your audiences in many of these specials in ways that sometimes I guess they know they're being pre screened. Sometimes they have no idea. They think they're taking a course in, you know, self improvement or whatever it is. And you are. Continually selecting for yeah. the most suggestible people or the most conforming people, mm. whether it's they're conforming to social pressure or s- showing themselves to be vulnerable to you, just you know dropping the right words into their into yeah. their heads yeah so you've had so many specials that I would love to talk about, but should we go chronologically? I want to talk about the push mm-hmm. and I want to talk about miracle and I want to talk about sacrifice okay, cool There's the
1: three most recent ones so that yeah. would, that would oh, is it
0: sense. okay. So let's talk about the push. What did you do there?
1: So the push, the push was looking at social compliance, and it was a, a big, dark, fun, funny kind of experiment. It took, we did it over a, a weekend to see if somebody could be made to commit murder through, just through social compliance. So there's a big event that this guy finds himself at everyone's an actor apart from him he has no idea it's being filmed he's applied to be in the show months ago and then you know told he hadn't got it so he just finds himself at at this event and bit by bit starting with he sort of gets roped into helping at the event so starting with him being asked to mislabel meat sausages uh, meat sausage rolls as vegetarian and him kind of you know going along with that it builds and builds and builds to the point that he pushes or doesn't push someone off a roof
0: by stages you're selecting for somebody who is willing to under some pressure of authority it's like yeah. a mini milgram experiment in fact you actually yeah. do the milgram experiment in yeah, that yeah. Episode, it's a different correct? that was a
1: different, but spe- yeah but we used, oh, it was yeah, a different yeah. Yeah. okay um, we did a, we did a compliance test which is the bell test you may have seen where people are coming in you've got a uh, being made to stand up and sit down when they hear a bell because the first yeah, few people exactly. in the row are actors yeah. and then you build the line up the actors yeah. then leave and now you've got a room of people doing it for no For no reason. Just out of, again, just out of compliance. So yeah, so we've chosen this guy. He's then told he's not used, and then sometime later he just is at this event that we've, you know, constructed this whole way of getting in there without him knowing it's anything to do with
0: us. So he's at an event where literally everyone in sight is in on the gag. Yeah. But he's just surrounded by actors and doesn't know it. absolutely. Watching it, it's pretty remarkable to realize how unusual a circumstance that is and how we are not Prepared to interpret reality with mm. that being one of the possible explanations for what's going on. Absolutely.
1: Right? Well, the, the, the fear that we've had over the years of you know, what if what if he spots a camera or what if there's a glitch in this Truman show like fiction? But of course the reality is if you were in a if you were in a restaurant and a camera fell out from behind the curtains, you you wouldn't think everyone here is an everyone actor. Everyone here's an actor. This yeah. whole thing is some yeah. elaborate, you know, you just there oh, were cameras falling out from behind the curtains. You wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily Make that make right. that all about you know right. make the whole thing. It's about all you. about me, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So right. we're, there have been moments when uh, you know a, ca- a camera's been has been spotted or just some something like that has happened, and we're all you know suddenly all sphincters are tight and it's fine. You know nothing nothing bad happens at all. So we've kind of uh, kind of got used to it. But it, it's yeah we've kind of got good at being able to create and hold these. There's a whole other show with each one of these, and just how you create that, how you create the fiction, how you get the guy to the point that, because also these people have to be, you have to make sure they're robust enough psychologically to go through these quite dark journeys. So they have to be independently vetted.
0: This is my daughter's, my ten-year-old daughter's question for you: Is (laughs) how do you know they're fine? How are you not in jail for what you put people through? (laughs) That's 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 that's, That's her literal wording because you're putting, I mean, some of these, some more than others, but for instance, The Push, there is a real ethical question about what you're doing here, because you're, in some cases, you're making people look very, very good, as we'll talk about in Sacrifice. Mm. You reveal this person's latent heroism, Mm. but in The Push, you are revealing a very dark fact about somebody, or at least it can be interpreted as a very dark Mm. fact. and. How do you view that? I mean, so it's just to fast forward to the punchline of that show. I mean, and spoiler alert for anyone who wants to go watch these shows. In some cases, yes, you get someone to reveal that they're capable of murder. Yeah, you know, he shoves a guy off a rooftop based on all the suggestibility that you have engineered in him. That doesn't look great on his CV, does it?
1: (laughs) Well, I, I, that I think the push was, I think, uniquely. Dark and unredemptive.
0: And was it two of three people? It did was it? four in the end. Yeah, four, four okay. of them, and three out of the four did three it. Three out of four did it. Yeah.
1: The way I, the way I see these things with, with all of the shows, and I always have well, with any of the shows, regardless of whether it's sort of a you know a, a happy ending or whatever it brings out in the person, they're always they're very often going through a kind of a dark period of the, you know, the sort of journey at some point. So I do get asked about ethically how they can be justified. My feeling is. I'm really only interested in this one person's experience that is going through it. So in The Push, for example, it's, well, it's hard to talk about without giving it away, but the guy, the guy that doesn't do it has been through hell to get there, yeah. but he feels great about himself. So he's very happy with the experience. And then the, the, the careful situation is, is framing the whole thing for the others. So by the point they come to do it, there are so many things that I've layered in during their, what has essentially been their audition process, that they don't realise it's an audition process, the number of meetings that they've had, they think they're one of 300 people doing that, but actually by this point it's only that five. There's things that can be layered in so that very quickly, obviously at any point during I can, you know, step in and if need be, and the whole thing, but also afterwards the whole thing can be framed very quickly for them, again, as something positive. And that, that's probably the most difficult not difficult, but the most... Uh, of, of all the situations of having to make sure that something is a positive experience for them to take away, mm. that's probably the most, like, would appear to be the most kind of conflicting. But actually, for them, they all found it very positive because their feeling is, I've now been through this, and yes, I did that, but most people do, and that's what we've shown. That's right. not like anything unusual about me because that's yeah. what most people do. But what I'm I'm now armed with an experiential... You know, well, that experience of having done it. So, if ever I find myself in a situation where I'm going to get manipulated, I've been through that now, and I can stand up to it. And and that's kind that's the key to me. And then obviously, these are all people that remain friends, and we all keep in touch. And mm-hmm. none of them have had that other thing we might think of. Well, that means they're not going to get a, a job, or you know, people are right. fascinated by their experience, but none of them have had those those right. troubles. But I think that show is unique in that 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 question is i think probably most obvious with that as well mm. you know are those people okay and the answer is they are they always are everyone that's done these things comes out of it saying it's you know it's the best thing they've ever done and that ultimately to me is what matters even though of course i understand people stepping back from it and going well how can you how can you justify it and so on
0: yeah so then there's the flip side of your experience and the necessity to deceive people to just get this Show up and running. Mm. How do you navigate that ethically? And
1: because they know what they're getting into, they're applying for my shows, and they know the sort of things that that I do. Right. And I think I think it's a end justifying the means thing. I think for you know if somebody's going to go through something that takes there's a lot of manipulation involved, but the end result is a mm. is a hugely positive one for them. I think it's I think that's okay.
0: To compare this to normal magic or normal yeah. illusion, so your normal stage magic is a situation where there's a trick you as a professional magician don't want to reveal how the trick is done it's not done the way it seems to be done it seems to be done by magic and there's some terrestrial answer compatible with the laws of physics that explains how the trick is done and that's the part you don't reveal with these manipulations of people,
1: they're absolutely what they are, if that's what you're asking, yeah, there's my no, my question is no... is
0: there any distance between the audience's final appreciation of what has happened and what has in fact happened? No, not at all, not okay. at all. There
1: are sometimes scenes that don't make it, scenes that have to get you know squashed down and bits that, as you will be editing anything so right. I mean Phil in sacrifice, for example, had um a couple of experiences that didn't make the final show, and there was a whole lot of other stuff we did with all the applicants that took part in the show that didn't make it. So there's always things like that. That's just part of putting a, yeah, a show just, together. To but no, it, yeah. in, in terms of, you know, is he playing along, or is he does he know more about what's going on than I'm letting on, or anything right. like that? Then no, right. it would be it would be pointless and just sort of repugnant as well. I think be yeah. artistically repugnant and yeah. just pointless to do. that Well, yeah,
0: so but it would be a, a kind of fraud. But it's interesting to consider that it's. They're just gradations of fraud which account for magic. It's, it's hard to know really where the line yeah, is.
1: Yeah, I suppose so. But I think you then it's
0: It's a different category of
1: Yeah, I I I for me I the the as I said, the fiction is something that we're sharing in. The deception is something we're sharing in. And I I save the the kind of theatrical deception that everybody knows that it's part of the game for the stage shows now. Right. So I think that kind of makes that makes sense. And even then I I, I try and push it in a to a place that it's I, I, I guess, cause I, you know, I'm 47 and doing magic is quite a childish thing. So I try and find more interesting things to do with the with the sort of technologies of magic, I guess. And, and which ultimately is just for me, it's just about the stories that people tell themselves. That's That's kind of my toolkit. So one direction that can go in is creating these specials where somebody's put through something and it is ultimately about the stories they tell themselves. And and maybe challenging those stories or the limitations of those narratives that they're living out. And then I save the more kind of, uh, yeah, the more just kind of look at me anti-clever. But it, right. i still trying to try and do, try and do right. something more interesting with it for the stage.
0: So, yeah, it seems to me that your your topic through all of these shows is... A question about what are the actual origins of human behavior and what role belief and framing and expectation and suggestion and environment play in all of that. You really are doing a real time psychological study of people in odd situations. And it's fascinating to watch, but there are these moments where the effect you're achieving seems impossible. I actually can't remember which show this was. This could be. They're smithereens for me because I, my daughter and I binge watched so many of them in pieces. But you had one where, based on the mere association of a few things like the sound of music playing from a passing car, oh, yeah, yeah. you got people to basically perform an armed robbery yeah. of the Pinkertons or the Brinks people who were bringing money to, in or out of a bank. And the idea that that suggestion could be that powerful, that someone would have you know.
1: Yeah, but it's not just it's not just music from the car. I mean, that there's a whole process that you follow of of basically conditioning, which is essentially the same in sacrifice. And I've used this process a lot. Yeah. I, I I tend to sort of think, well, I need to get somebody to this point. So how does that break down in terms of the things they need to feel at that point? And then eliciting those feelings, attaching them to some sort of trigger so that you know, it's it's the same as if you I always think of the example of breaking up with somebody and having a horrible time doing that. But there's a song that's just playing a lot on the radio at the Mm -hmm. time, and then you don't hear it for five years, and then you hear it again, and it just immediately just brings you back into that state.
0: But here we have a complex behavior that is not only starkly antisocial, but can send someone to prison, right? Yeah. And it's like, this is a major decision to rob a bank.
1: Yeah. Right. Yes. It was holding up a holding, holding, up, a holding up the, guard. the security guard. But what I'm doing? Bringing... But you're sort of I'm presenting those triggers. So there were like three or four. I can't even quite remember what they all were. But three or four different different triggers, and then this sort of tantalizingly available. Scenario, which is again yeah. quite unrealistic, but right. So it's just all—it's just all so kind of impossibly fortuitous that it all happens. So I, right. I don't. To me, it isn't a surprise. I think. Well, well, the surprise is I think over the years that people do just sort of follow these tracks. That if you pick somebody that's suggestible, you pick the right sort of person, and they've been through this transformative thing that's lasted for however long we've been filming for. Built up these associations. It's going to happen. I mean, if you, imagine, if you imagine it was a room of people, some of those people in the room you get would do it. But then yeah. w- what would be the difference between those people and the others? Well, they'd probably be more suggestible. Those, those ideas would be, would be dropping in at a much more impactful level than most of the room. But then those are the people I'm using. I mean, it, they're kind of experiments in one sense. In another sense, they, I mean, they're clinically not really that interesting because it's not like I'm doing it with a large number of people or I haven't, I haven't got a control group in the, you know, in the next room. Doing it without the various triggers, well, that well you keep them, so. losing
0: your control group. You keep just not yeah, selecting exactly. those people. Exactly, yeah.
1: exactly. So yeah. it's it's more of a kind of here's an emotional journey to go through, and maybe that might make you think about things you know in your own life. It's more of that kind of world. I see it more as a sort of kind of a drama ultimately. But the the mode, the feeling of an experiment is is the way that
0: that's expressed. What's your take on free will, given the fact that you manipulate people wherever you go to do things that they can't explain?
1: I like, I, I like that there's both. I like that if you look at it in one way, of course there's no free will. You can look at it another way and you can go, yes, but ultimately we can, we can exercise our choice and make a difference to a situation. And I sort of, I'm quite happy to, I'm quite happy to sit with both. I know uh-huh. I feel silly saying this, saying this to you, but... Um, <laughs>
0: Well no there's definitely one level at which it makes conventional sense to talk about choices. I mean choices yeah. are the proximate cause of the thing you then decide to do, but when you try to figure out where your choices come from mm. and just how much control you as the witness of your experience had over those variables, mm. you know from genes on up, of course you know,
1: yeah, but I still think I still think i, I there was that experiment at the Max Planck Institute with the um, this is where this idea came that we make our decisions uh, anything up to seven seconds unconsciously before we before we make them conscious. You know, you must know this with the yeah, we, subjects yeah, yeah. pressing well, uh, a, a or B, and they're like
0: Benjamin LeBay, Yeah, the, that's the, the it, Le, Le, yes. LeBay experiments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, those tantalizingly, they tell the story of the readiness potential in mm. the premotor cortex being available. In this case, like 500 milliseconds before the motor behavior, or actually 500 milliseconds before the person's subjective report of when they decided to move. So they're mm. they're watching a clock that is, you know, made so as to make it as easy as possible to discriminate these increments of time, and is that they're given the simplest possible motor task. You know, hit the button or not. Mm, you know, hit mm. the left button or hit the right button, and they're mind is genuinely open and not committed for whatever period of time. And then when they subjectively are aware of having committed, they note where the hand was on this special Mm -hmm. clock. And lo and behold, it was a full half second before that Mm -hmm. where you could predict with, I forget what the actual did extend to wore, something like ninety like percent
1: or something ridiculous? At one well, point? then they yeah. then
0: there was an fMRI study that pushed that all the way back to like seven seconds, yeah. where you could get a better than chance prediction.
1: So I've always found it a strange experiment because it feels it feels to me contaminated by the idea of don't think about it before you do it. So of course you start right. to think about is it A or B, and then uh, and then you. But what, then you could you you do could, the could opposite, su- but, or yeah, I, you could
0: suddenly do the opposite. But the truth is. All of that research is really a red heron. It's, right. it's not okay. Well, that's, that, what, that's what it feels I like. Mean, me, you you but, don't yeah. actually need the neurophysiological story to know that there must be some chain of events of which you are not conscious that actually underwrite mm. what you are conscious of. And any conscious deliberation would fall into that category. So,
1: yeah, well, I, so I have no argument with it. I, I enjoy both both sides, I, I, but I, do, I don't think that, um, you know, with obviously what I'm doing, I'm creating the, the illusion of that sort of control most of the time, so I don't, I don't
0: see my work as a sort of... Uh, but you're still putting people in positions where they are strangers to themselves, in that they're doing things that they can't account for, but you can account for. yeah. I mean, I suppose Yeah, to a remarkable degree. I mean, everyone's doing this to everyone all the time, less systematically. I mean, you know, advertisers are trying to get us to click their links, right. or and you know that's probably the most systematic version that we all encounter. But for you to be putting people in situations where you're hoping that at that moment they're going to push a guy off a roof, mm. and you then some
1: you, of them did and some of them didn't. I mean, I'm yeah, laying down well, these, I'm laying down you, these you, tracks you, for them.
0: Right. Right. Seventy-five percent did, and yeah. the ones who did did it hundred percent.
1: That's true. That's true.
0: <laughs> Let's talk about sacrifice because this is a genuine happy ending, and it it's appearing in the context of a political environment where it seems all too of the moment. Give us the setup. What is the show? Sacrifice. Well,
1: actually, it, was, it was because put, the the push was the uh, the push was the first show on. Netflix I'd already done it. it'd already been out in the UK before but it was the first thing on Netflix and then Miracle which was my stage show but Push was like right. the last sort of special that I'd done and I felt like I had to do something that was sort of the opposite of it and and was more redemptive and so sort of rather r- than rather, life, rather than
0: reveal the a propensity to commit murder on the spot yeah, yeah this is the it's kind this of the opposite is, yeah okay so um, so what is so the, the premise sacrifice?
1: is using these kind of covert psychological techniques trying to get a right-wing, Trump-supporting American guy with pretty pretty strong views against illegal immigration, if not immigrants yeah. generally, to take a bullet to lay down his life for a Mexican illegal immigrant, or at least someone he believes is. So that was the premise of the show.
0: It's a crazy premise. It's a crazy premise. I mean, I mean you could have walked that back a little bit, and <laughs> still it would have been a, an ambitious undertaking. Yeah,
1: well, it's sort of the way it... When we initially kind of put the show together, I intended it to have more of a overtly kind of political feel to it. So in what you see at the start of the show, which is 100 people coming together, and I'm choosing the guy I'm going to use, we had a whole day of really interesting experiments were going on. We were doing Jonathan heights work on changing the environment to... He writes about it in The Righteous Mind. I think perhaps it isn't actually yeah. his, but one of his colleagues making the room disgusting, leaving right. had fake vomit and a n- nasty smell. And and the idea is by, by having those feelings of threat and contamination that you could make otherwise liberal-minded people give more conservative sociopolitical answers to questions they'd already right. answered in more liberal ways earlier on. And vice versa, making uh, conservatives more liberal, which is another well-known experiment of inducing a feeling of invincibility first so you're undoing that feeling of of, of threat which seems to be um, allied to uh, more right wing views so we did had a whole lot of stuff that was really fascinating all of this ended up coming out because it felt in the end the show was more elegant to make it about a, a human quality of compassion and kindness and 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 stepping outside of these kind of political narratives so in the end you know Trump was never mentioned, and and, it, it, and also that thing if I I'm not American, it's always a bit ugly and uncomfortable when somebody from somewhere else comes in and seems to be passing comment on right. you know, on your own system. So I, 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 and I think the show's better for it. There was just a lot more that we could have put into it, but in the end, it's it's a, a story about, I think somebody's you know, stepping outside of the constraints of those kind
0: of uh, narratives. Do you have a hard time limit for these Netflix specials? Do they have to come in right at an hour? Is no, it, no, no, not no? at all, not okay. at all. Uh,
1: I think originally it, we were imagining it would be like an hour and a half, but as we stripped more and more out and it, it got down, to I think it's about 47 minutes or right. something now, which is what the show, what an hour of TV certainly yeah. used to be with ads in it, at least in the UK.
0: So you've selected this right-wing, somewhat conspiratorial character who is opposed to immigration and... wasn't floridly racist no he's not a monster racist
1: i think which would have been a different show i think then it would have been about you know look at look how clever i am to be able to to be able to transform this monster racist guy into a a nice guy which i didn't want the show to be about so i wanted somebody you'd kind of relate to so although at the beginning what was the
0: worst view he expressed i can't quite i'm so inundated with this kind of material now studying white supremacy and all the rest (laughs) of
1: he was saying you know yeah kick them all out and they're going to turn our country to shit and so he was quite okay. kind of uh yeah quite clear
0: right in that and um yeah, he actually wanted people kicked out right it wasn't just yeah did, build a wall, is, build is, a bigger wall but it's um, not just a matter of not letting more in no no it's, just, it yeah was, yeah, okay.
1: yeah but you know like a lot okay. of people he's dealing with difficulties in his own life financially and yeah. uh, particularly and he's seeing these you know these what to him people coming in and Getting free handouts. And it's that, it's that sort of narrative that, that he settled into very comfortably.
0: Right. Okay. So yeah. you have the perfect subject. What does he think he's doing in this?
1: He thinks he's taking part in a documentary about cutting edge biotechnology. So he, we the first thing we do with him, and we've chosen him, is we tell him, look, you're one of six people that's going to beta test this technology. So we're going to put a microchip in you. So we. we we make a hole in the back of his yeah. Neck. It's
0: an actual sham surgery. It's yeah. an actual sham surgery.
1: Yeah. We stick a uh, we show him this this uh, microchip. We don't actually put it in, but he now thinks he's got a microchip, which is somehow talking to this app he has on his phone, and the app allows him to take more control of his life by attaching a feeling of a kind of in, an impulse to act, a kind of almost reckless impulse to just act without thinking. To a sound, to a little jingle sound. So this allows me to. This is one of the triggers that he that he that he gets is one bit of the jigsaw puzzle. So I could present that in a way that had nothing to do with the real agenda of the show. So he goes away and he listens to this app and the uh, the this the trigger sound triggers and he associates this feeling of you know go for it just do it with this with this sound in the same way that you know you watch an ad and it shows plenty of sexy people and then flashes up the product and you think well I'll buy that product because. It'll make me sexy. So fairly straightforward conditioning. So he has he has that. That's one bit of the jigsaw puzzle. There's another bit of the jigsaw puzzle, which is feelings of empathy. And essentially it was those two those two feelings. It was a I wanted to I wanted to harness a very strong feeling of empathy and a very strong desire to act and trigger those off in this highly dramatic situation he finds in at the end, where he has the opportunity to to save a life by Stepping in and taking a bullet himself,
0: right, and again, this is a, another one of these situations where he's surrounded by actors, yeah. and has no reasonable way to yeah, exactly, that. so he, yeah.
1: he has a period of filming with us where he thinks he's doing this documentary, but meanwhile, there's certain there's hidden camera filming, there's other bits that are going on where he's going through this transformative process, and then it finishes, and he thinks the finishing is over, and he goes home, he goes back to Florida where he lives and Time passes, and then there's this final scene, which is kind of testing. He's been through the change, really the change. He's been through all that. Mm. Now it's testing us to see whether it'll work. So we construct this situation where he thinks he he flies to LA to drive down and meet his friend in Vegas. This is something totally separate from us. Well, it Mm. isn't. We've 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 contrived this ourselves. But he thinks it's nothing to do with us at all. But the sort of the story gets sort of hijacked. The car is in. breaks down he finds himself in this biker bar this is all now filmed hidden cameras all the bikers are actors these two mexican guys come in there's a conflict they get thrown out they take their revenge by tipping over these guys bikes and the conflict escalates to the point they're being held at gunpoint and he's watching from within a truck he's sort of been left in a truck this is going on outside mm-hmm. so it was this whole thing of will he get out the truck will he step in will he will he make a stand
0: Did you only have one subject? There's only one subject,
1: yeah. which is normal. It was unusual in the push to have more than one. You can't really go to all these lengths again and again with more than one person.
0: Okay, so what if he hadn't gotten out of the truck?
1: If he hadn't done it, which kind of gives away the ending that he does, but that's... that's, (laughs) no.
0: You're setting up a situation where your one subject can either rise to the occasion or not, provide a major payoff for your premise or not, Mm -hmm. and... The result, just you know, artistically for you, as having had this idea to do this in the first place, is pretty different. With the push, you had many subjects you were running through and you could sort of get yeah. it on both sides. Here you had one shot at it. So yeah. how do you go into a situation like that where you don't know if this is going to work out and I could imagine... You could fail and then yeah, what? It you know, yeah, it could fail and the yeah. failure could seem pretty underwhelming as far as well, you're, I, yeah. you're presenting this the premise.
1: answer to that is I, I think just that you you you, t- you allow the story to continue that there, there would if um i don't want to give away the ending but if if the guy doesn't do the thing that it's all been leading towards
0: there are more things you could experiment yeah with, you'd, you'd... i think
1: we'd we'd find we'd have, that didn't work and then the story would continue and we'd find a way of bringing the story to a conclusion that still felt like an amazing ending right but we'd have to just be with the situation a, a, a bit more and i think that's that's sort of i guess that's the um that's the advantage of of it being a television show is that you can write on the on the hoof we've had to do this um not quite that but in in apocalypse which was a oh yeah that was also good show. yeah that was making that was ending the world for somebody and then they wake up in this post apocalyptic zombie infested world where they basically go through the plot of the wizard of oz to find their way back home but in that story... But, so, but um, that
0: is yet another story where you, so you've, you've taken complete control of this guy's environment. Yeah. His family is now in on it. Yeah. And you've and sto- had cameras in his house you, for like Yeah, you've stolen and his months. phone, and you've put apps on his phone that deliver him fake news. Fake so th- news. So,
1: uh, before fake news was fake news. Right. Yeah, we've got control of his TV as well, so we've we recorded special versions of like topical news uh, programs right, that he right, watches to right, mention right. this asteroid oh yeah and you storm. had
0: you had a, a radio station playing something in a public place that he happened to step into right like and a again, bar or... on
1: a radio station that he knows and yeah yeah presenters so that he knows. I mean, this
0: is just a completely orwellian intrusion mm. into his consciousness and you totally you have given him the experience of the zombie apocalypse yeah right? Yeah.
1: completely. Right. But there was a situation in that where, in so the, the main action, once the world has ended, in inverted commas, the main action that follows took place over a weekend where he's in a, like a military Im- environment with a, the other people that he's found. Right. And we realised that the, the story wasn't quite going to work because there's this, there was this other character who was kind of the alpha male character and, and Stephen, who's our Mark, who's the guy going through it, he needed to become the alpha male. So we, we realized we had to get rid of this other actor. We had to get mm. rid of his character. So at three in the morning, we're rewriting the story that we then can only feed to this actor through an earpiece because right. of course he's, you know, he's in it, living yeah. it out yeah. uh, as it's going on. So you know these things do happen. You have the opportunity, if, if necessary, to kind of rewrite or extend and you can still then present that, that story. There are failures within, um, within sacrifice that are kind of, shown and, and embraced i think you just have to oh yeah work I mean, out how to yeah. let that sit honestly right. and transparently at, at the end if it happens to come at the
0: end have you ever had a total failure where the person recognizes exactly how it's a up and just no. pulls the brakes
1: no. no no that's never happened the, the closest to that was a big show i did on uh, on placebo which involved a um a big fake kind of pharmaceutical company that we're going to administer the placebo to these people that were going through it so, there are a bunch of kind of, you know, applicants and people that were, were going to do this show. And somehow, a science student, I can't remember, I think I he think was a biologist, had somehow slipped through the net and was part mm-hmm. of this group. And he's walking through this. It's a big old, big old building, which was actually at some point one of those big, you know, pharmacological companies' buildings, but now empty. But it's now full of actors. And everybody. anyway, he got, he took us to one side and said, This isn't real. Right, I can yeah. tell this is fake. All their white lab coats are just too white. It, right. This isn't, this isn't real. And I've just looked the some of the leaflets. I've just looked behind all the right. all the leaflets apart from the front one are blank. And he right. just he'd had that <laughs> Truman Show moment. Right, right, right. So we kind of uh, went okay, all right, well, <laughs> just um, maybe you want to step out of this one, but just or or yeah, I I think we just sort of we let him uh, come out of it. But it was uh-huh. kind of it was it was interesting. It's kind of exciting when that happens. But in terms of like the guy that's going through it then no, nothing's ever, nothing's ever fallen apart like that.
0: There was one special you did, I don't know what it was a part of, I just saw the the individual scene on on a train, I think you're on a New York subway, or maybe you're in the tube in London, but you're just giving people some suggestion that they've forgotten their stop, Mm, mm. and I couldn't figure, how were you doing that, because you didn't appear to have time with them beforehand, you just sort of walked up to people cold on the train and said, where are you getting off, and you did some, I forget what the intrusion was but it seemed yeah. like you were just getting them to just blank on yeah where they which were is getting essentially
1: what you're doing but it yeah. does help having a camera crew with you and this sort of sudden bewildering spotlight that, right. that people are put in and i found that a generally very helpful tool that and yeah and not everybody of course yeah. and not right. most people but some people just they uh, right. I, I do a similar thing on stage people come up on stage and i know that that moment of stepping out in front of or stepping up onto stage in front of 2,000 people and all of which, like the audience is generally just sort of a blackness and so you've just got a spotlight in your face. It's such an odd, bewildering bewildering yeah. experience. But it's great for me because I know that person is highly suggestible at that, at that point. So it's a, you know, it's a moment to harvest. So
0: So to take that moment as the focus, that has always felt to me that the boundary between suggestion really working and social pressure is very hard to discern because it yeah. there has to be a be a sense in many people that they have a sense of what you're going for and they don't want to disappoint you as the performer mm, mm. right so where where is the line there between someone just kind of going along with your gag because they feel like it's the right thing to do and them actually being manipulated by the suggestion
1: i think there's a really just gray area i don't i and and ultimately my aim it, it'll depend on what i'm doing but say so if i'm on if this is happening on stage, I am probably just trying to harness a particular, like theatrical effect. So if like
0: I person's paralyzed or something. Yeah.
1: Well, if I if so, if I rapidly hypnotize somebody and I can see that they're sort of they're just kind of playing along, that might that might be no good for me in terms of what what I want to do with them next because it might not work. So I might have to rethink something. But for the audience, that moment, you know. We'll, Probably work just as well if, uh, yeah, as could, if they had genuinely pass, yeah. kind of you know. So, so the situation I'm in often those things don't matter too much because I'm trying to create a, a, a theatrical effect. It would be obviously very different in a kind of clinical environment, but I'm not ultimately. I'm doing these things in the context of entertainment. However, ultimately, if people are just sort of playing along, then it's not doesn't normally allow me to do the yeah. It'll fail. That it, I, it'll it fail was... somewhere else along the lines. So right. I've got to rethink something elsewhere or get right. rid of them and get somebody else up. And I normally tend to. Do that. So it sounds really harsh, doesn't it? It sounds horrible. But yeah, yeah no, I, well, you know, I, I editing, have full license yeah. to be able to send somebody back and get someone else. Something. Yeah.
0: And now notice we skipped over miracle. Do you want to talk about miracle at all? Because it, this is somewhat related to other things you've done where you have debunked faith healing uh, or at least pressed pretty hard on the claims of faith healers. Mm. And some of that's been fascinating to see you confront people who are not wanting to admit their using any of the processes that allow you to do what you're doing. Mm. But in Miracle, you essentially perform your own faith healing. Mm. So what, what happened there?
1: Mm. It was a really, uh, it was, in terms of the experience of doing a show every night and touring with it, it was like, it was unlike any any of the other ones I'd, I had done. I'd made a show previously called Miracles for Sale, which, in which we took a guy who was, um, he was a scuba instructor from England and took him out to Dallas and, passed him off as a healer i Mm -hmm. I taught him the techniques as i understood them and then we just see whether he could get away with doing it out there so but in doing that i'd kind of got the bug for doing it myself it just seemed a really tantalizing thing to try but of course with my audiences because they they know me and they're skeptical like me it didn't make any sense to try and do it with an audience that wouldn't be there as believers but i i tried it so miracle was. A couple of shows ago, so I, do, I tour every year pretty much in the UK with a stage show, and every two mm. years it's a brand new show. And the, not the last one, but the one before was was Miracle, which is now on uh, on Netflix. And so in it, I thought, well, I'm going to do this. The second half I'll make about faith healing, and I'll just say to the audience, look, I'm sure you don't believe in this any more than me, but just come along with it. Just do as I ask, and and because the results, I think, can be extraordinary. So I went out on the first night not knowing Really, how it would work? I had a couple of sort of, sort of mechanical almost points in place, like tricks, like magic tricks within it that I thought, well, I'm, I can get to the end of of the show with this, even if, even if psychologically it's not really kicking in in between, and I can rethink it for the second night. I should at least be able to hit certain points and get to the end of the show.
0: But it actually worked surprisingly well, and not only. How many dates did you have in front of you when you're trying this for the first time? With one show, did you have thirty dates on the calendar where you had to tour this? Oh,
1: I no, I had one hundred and fifty. I had like four months, four months doing it every night. And there's no way of you can practice it in a rehearsal room, but you until you've got an audience of two thousand people to see how many, what percentage of that you know respond. But it was it was absolutely fascinating. First of all, I thought because the first thing you're doing is you're creating adrenaline. So an adrenaline is a painkiller. So I you know you as with a lot of these healers, you 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 know, you expect to see somebody who said, oh, I had a bad back and now my, my back doesn't hurt. I kind of expected that level of, of mm. healing, in inverted commas. But I remember in the first week, a woman came up and she'd been paralyzed down one side of her body all her life. And for the, she was in floods of tears. She was able to move her left arm for the first time since she, she could remember. That was extraordinary. Uh, also, people were responding. They were doing this thing, being slain in the spirit, you know, when the when the healer sort of touches their yeah. forehead and they fall out on the floor. Yeah. Because I'd shown them video, I'd shown them video clips of, so they, I had to sort of educate people to know how to respond. So showing them clips gets that idea in their head that
0: but that's this is what's going to happen when I this do. This is nuts because this is now happening in the context of you being a, a yes. fairly famous skeptic, right? Yeah. I mean, don't people and I'm, know? I'm sort of playing the part,
1: though. I'm kind of talking the language by this point. So there's this oddly kind of bewildering role-playing i think right. that people, but are it is somewhat arch
0: into. i mean you're not actually playing the part you're not saying listen i know you're all going to be surprised i now believe in miracles and you know no, I, I can yeah. heal you like you're you're saying i'm, I'm still sort of the saying skeptic. i'm now yeah. going to play the part come, right. come with me on this right right
1: so that was extraordinary so the level of healing not every night of course but the, the the type of healings were way beyond what i thought would happen
0: so were there nights where this effect wasn't achieved at all
1: no no it always worked but some nights it might be aches and pains that had gone, and other nights, probably about probably a good sort of two-thirds of the night, there was two-thirds of the nights, there'd be something that would be um, like, you know, I remember a guy just had like a trigger finger, which is a horrible thing. you know he just can't move uh, you know your fingers are just locked. Yeah. He's an old guy, and he had it for a long time, and he just he was able to move his hand, and you know, f- sort of things that feel really physical don't yeah, just feel like yeah. adrenaline has cured some pain. And then the other level to it that was extraordinary, of course, now the, in terms of the percentages of response, like we're moving down from 2,000 people to maybe a couple of hundred maybe that actually come forward and then right. I'm only getting maybe 10 or so people that are coming up yeah, on stage. Yeah,
0: but you're grabbing but, half a percent of, I mean, that, yeah, so, exactly. that's, a, that's so always an extraordinarily yeah. susceptible group for whatever exactly. you're looking for. Exactly. You know? So yeah, you we're, we're, we're going to be, in, yeah, we're gonna be yeah. in the
1: extraordinary area, absolutely. But then the, uh, yeah, the final level was people that, I'm then thinking, well, these people are going to go home and go back to where they were. They're going to revert to, you know, once the adrenaline of the whole thing is over and so on. But again, a, a percentage of now that small percentage of writing to me, a, you know, a year later and saying, just so you know, I, I am still free from, from that problem. I, in fact, recently I, I was filming something and the, um, the makeup artist, lady who's doing my makeup, said her husband had watched the show go out He'd had a golfing injury for three years. He right. watched the show on TV. His golfing injury went. He was so embarrassed by that fact. It took him a year before he told his wife right. who was then telling me that right. you know that that had happened. so admittedly, you know very small percentages, but what was compelling was just that psychological component of suffering that was yeah. a very, that was a really interesting thing to see play out night after night that somewhere in that not just the adrenaline, but m- more so, the this, the this, this story that people are living out of an affliction or a or a condition that they have, and when that story is interrupted, and they view it differently, it, it's it was it was extraordinary. And then, then of course, then I start to go mad with it myself. I'm thinking, well, maybe I could I could play Stadio with this show and say, well, look, I'm this is only what it is, and but it works for some it works for some of you. people. Yeah. So why don't you come along and I. I but then of course well like we we never advertised the show as about healing because I well, didn't want people to call going. it
0: placebo and then you're you're call
1: it placebo. Yeah. Well exactly. So that whole world of madness. Yeah, For a but second. A, but beckoned. you're
0: but the placebo effect is real. You know, the placebo effect is something when you're testing drugs that you have to It's a real thing. Go yeah. up against and sometimes you can't beat the placebo effect yeah. or just barely. Yeah. Well so this links up rather nicely to the topic of your book, Happy, which I'm embarrassed to say I've only just begun, but you have a lot to say on the topic of human well-being and how to safeguard it and what undermines it. And you've been influenced by Stoic philosophies. How do you think of your own well-being and what advice do you have for a life well-lived?
1: Well, it it, it resonated. The Stoics resonated with me, but the book took me about three years to write. I was writing it while I was on tour. So in sort of three or four month blocks over the course of three years. So that was, Long enough, from, for actually my kind of my feelings to change and sort of grow so i i um i think i have it, it, there's in that there's that sort of pattern of people having a sort of avoidant personality or or an anxiety anxiety attachments or avoidant attachments so i i'm I'm classically quite avoidant I'm very good at avoiding stress uh mm-hmm. I'm good at avoiding challenges or anything that makes me uncomfortable well, What I, does that I, mean
0: I... to avoid stress if you have? A tremendous workload. You're putting 150 dates on the calendar. That can't be. That is a, a really stress. enjoyable thing for me. It's not. So you, just, you just uh, love doing it. Stressful.
1: Yeah. But if somebody emails and says, "Would you come and give a talk about something in an event?" I just oh, just shut it straight down because uh-huh. I, that suddenly is a, a new threatening <laughs> situation right. that I'd much rather avoid. All those other things are very comfortable. Going out and presenting this very rehearsed, charismatic version of myself every night. That's fine. That's uh-huh. very comfortable. But I have I, I think I'm generally uh, I'm very good at avoiding. Stress as opposed to the opposite of that, the sort of anxiety pattern of seeing stress and then just running towards it like a magnet and, you know, trying to fix it and maybe making things worse. So the Stoics resonated with me because, of course, they're, you know, they're all about avoiding anxiety, avoiding disturbance. Well, also,
0: it's just not complicating your life unnecessarily. It's like, yes. it's, it's a, so much of it is foreseeing all of the bad things that reliably happen and Sort of preloading on the hard drive and acceptance of those things. It's like, I I think it was, I think it's Marcus Aurelius. I guess it could have been Seneca, but one of them said, you know, more eloquently than this, but when you get up in the morning, know that the moment you leave your house, you're going to meet assholes, right? You're going to meet people who will treat you badly, will say offensive things, will misunderstand you. And the modern analog for me, which I often think about, is it's, analogous to the way in which you might play a video game. You know this level of the game is mm. one wherein you will be beset with challenges. You will meet monsters uh, you know, armed with various weapons at various stages, and that's exactly what you should expect, right? You can either play this happily, or you can suffer every mm. stage along the way. There's, there's
1: yeah. a much easier relationship with, with fate, isn't there? That was, that was ultimately, I suppose, what they were what they were saying, to move in a much easier accordance with with fortune that we don't really give much uh, time and attention to the, the a, a, an image that really came out of the writing the book for me a recurring image of this sort of x equals y diagonal on a sort of imaginary graph that if we if we're told nowadays to set your goals and believe in yourself enough and if you do that you can you know you can make your life turn out however you wanted to then your if you imagine there's a, a graph where you've got your your aims and goals along one axis and your uh, stuff that life just throws back at you along the other. We're being told that you can crunch this line of your life up, up towards the axis of of your aims and your goals. Whereas mm. what the Greeks, and particularly the sort of the, the later Roman version of Stoicism, was so eloquent about is that this other stuff comes back at you. There is this. There is this you know, fortune, life will throw stuff back at you. And actually what we live is an X equals Y line and making your peace with this balance between your aims and just stuff, just life is a much more, it's a sort of strategic pessimism, I guess, but it's a much more mm. realistic place. And this same, that same idea comes up again and again. You have it in um, Michael Csikszentmihalyi's work on flow, the mm. idea of your balancing your, you know, the the, the challenges of, the world with your skill set and when you reach that x equals y line you've kind of got this flow state which is mm-hmm. a this great place to to be in regardless of what what skills are at work schopenhauer talks about it in in another form you know he talks a lot about
0: the stuff he was that life, a little further along the continuum of pessimism
1: very much so, so but yeah, but it's still it's yeah he's he clearly he loved the stoics and the 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 same idea you know he talks about if you're playing a game of chess you know you start out with a plan but you can't just stick with that plan throughout because there's this other person playing with yeah. you there's this other force coming back at you freud when he created psychoanalysis he, he, his aim was to restore what he called natural natural unhappiness right yeah. it wasn't to make people happy no. that was not what yeah. it was for it was to take unnatural unhappiness and restore what life basically is which involves a sort of a natural unhappiness, and it's it it, it's just a really compelling image for me. However, it's all based on this idea of avoiding anxiety, and I think, I think what they miss is the value of anxiety and the value yeah. of disturbance as a signal for growth. I don't know how we grow unless we appreciate that something's wrong, and anxiety is our way of. of... Well, well, actually,
0: that's not my reading of the Stoic so much as. I mean, because how bad is anxiety? It's not a matter of avoiding your fears. It's just fear is yet another one of these things mm. you can easily learn to tolerate. You know, you can move through, whether it's the fear of failing, at you know, some endeavor that you're going to try. I mean, you'll fail many times along the way until you succeed in some other way.
1: Well, it may just be how it resonates with said, my essentially avoidant pattern, but this mm. idea of avoiding disturbance and all these strategies that they offer to avoid disturbance. I think just yeah. just...
0: Well, it's avoiding a mind that is suffering unnecessarily. It's very Buddhist. I mean, th- it is. Well, the first very Stoics close, were, yeah. from,
1: were from the East. That's, yeah. that's, and all the interesting then, you've sort of got these, these Buddhist ideas that then sit in this much more kind of you know Western rational kind of mode and are then taken right up into Christianity, which of course had to win those stoics over so a lot of the right. same ideas it's an interesting thing where you see these eastern ideas continue up into up into christianity but i yeah. i i i value because this doesn't come naturally for me because i am naturally quite avoidant i now really i value anxiety i tr- I try to live with it better than than than, than what for me, the Stoics mm. felt like they were saying, which is these are all these ways of avoiding it. I, I, I Martha Nussbaum's idea of, of, of being a porous rock. The Stoics talk a lot about being a, uh, like a, a rock with the waves lashing against you. This sort of fortify. It's quite a tense sort of image. You're, mm. you're constantly sort of fortified. There's lots of images around, you know, war and sentries and frontier guards and so on. Whereas she, she suggests this more sort of porous idea of, well, a, you know, a porous rock that the water could move through or a, Pebble rolling around on the beach with the water, and I, I think that's that's a much nicer mm-hmm. image and more relaxed. You know, the Stoics were kind of if the Stoics were tense, then the Epicureans were these sort of more sort of relaxed other kind of school that was around at the time. But they didn't really get anything done, which is why I suppose why they didn't really kind of amount to much. And the Stoics did; they were big movers and shakers, despite yeah. how complacent they it can sound to modern ears. So it still sits really well with me, and I, I, I but I just. And they don't have a huge amount to say about sort of kindness either. That's another thing mm-hmm. that somewhere is sort of feels like it's very important and they don't have a lot to say about compassion. Well, it
0: really is a philosophy of picking your battles, you know, yeah. just, just knowing how to steward your own capacity for agitation and unhappiness and cutting your losses. There are many Silicon Valley people and productivity gurus, and you know, my, my friend Tim Ferriss is a major pusher of the stoics these days it's so useful to keep your attention on what you know at the end of the day you will wish you had your attention on you know i mean that's just Mm. such a simple algorithm and that captures much of what their advice was you know i mean if you know there are three things that you really will wish you had done today and you manage to live your life so as to do none of them that's you know you're doing something wrong right
1: yeah. yeah. Well, one of, the, uh, one of the sort of media techniques they teach you is, you know, if you're going in, in, into an interview, is have three things that you want to say and make sure you say okay. them. And then you'll come out thinking, that was, right. a, that was a good interview. And I suppose it's, it's yeah. a similar thing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, so speaking of that, in this interview, are there three things you want to say? And have you said any of them?
1: I'm I, hopeless at all those media mm-hmm. techniques, which is why I end up waffling a lot and uh, why I quite enjoy long-form podcasts. Yeah. Don't they sit yeah. well with me.
0: You can get around to something eventually that yeah. that you you're glad you said.
1: When you look at the obviously the parallels between Buddhism and Stoicism, do you think there's anything that, and obviously there are differences too. Do you think there's anything um, really vital that's lost that the Stoics sort of miss? Like when you when you hold the two up together, that are similar in in many ways.
0: Well, first I should say is I haven't. I don't consider myself a deep student of the stoics at all I and mean, I've read you know a few of the books but I haven't spent a ton of time with them and there's I mean, there's a tremendous amount of wisdom kind of ethical and psychological wisdom in what I've read and particularly Marcus Aurelius and Seneca but the methodology of Buddhism is something mm. extra which mm. I don't think you get and the clarity with respect to some fundamental insights about the nature of consciousness there's some resonances in the Western tradition. There are some people who clearly had experiences of selflessness and then tried to understand them in a Western context. Some of the existentialists fill this bill. Uh, certainly, Jean Paul Sartre had a conception of egolessness, which he wrote about. But there's not a clear, you know, William James had, you know, experiences that he spoke very eloquently about. But None of these guys had a methodology that they could use that would produce these experiences in anything like a reliable way, so there really is a an impressive asymmetry between the East and the West with respect to this particular strand of wisdom for mm. me i mean it it's when i've written about this i've said that the comparison is every bit as invidious as the comparison between eastern and western medicine, right so like Medicine is a fundamentally Western thing, and if it works in the East by virtue of something they're doing, it's in many cases an accident, and it's not working by in alignment with the theory that explains to them why it's working. You know, whether it's Ayurveda or Chinese medicine or whatever it is, an understanding of biology is is was discovered in the West and now spread globally, but the East really has. That kind of monopoly on specific meditative insights and Mm. their psychological and ethical implications. It's not to say that you can't find a Christian or a Muslim or a Jew here and there who have those experiences. We are, after all, just talking about the nature of consciousness, and so it's available for anyone to interrogate and you know stumble upon and discover. But in terms of clear thinking and writing, unencumbered by Confusing dogmatism on other points, I really only find that in the East and in the Indian tradition, especially, and really only super clearly in certain schools of Buddhism and in Advaita Vedanta, which is the non-dual teaching in what's nominally called Hinduism, but really it doesn't relate too much to what people think of as Hinduism.
1: Well, we're, we're we're very uncomfortable with the idea of transcendence, aren't we? We've we've and where we tend to sort of shove it now into our ideas of the supernatural, or maybe even like depth psychology, maybe psychoanalysis is another. It's a sort of a a world that can be never-ending. Have
0: you had experiences with psychedelics or meditation or anything that has pushed you out of your...
1: I haven't, I haven't, Mm -hmm. but I I think, you know, the sort of middle part of life you start to become more aware of of meaning and where and where to where to find it i, I so i was a christian for a long time and mm. then came out of that around the time of university and then was a ardent atheist and a vocal one for some time and now now i sort of just in terms of talking about transcendence i sort of my feelings around that now are that that religion at one point or the church well maybe not the church but re- religion at one point was this Phenomenological, experiential—well, experience of the of of, of transcendence—that that, that for some people at some point in time, in living memory of whatever happened historically, whatever that was, was a there was a
0: experience of transcendence. I think I'm understanding you. I think what we call religion is a residue of the fact that certain people had these experiences and talked about them and could kindle these experiences in other people. And then that begins to get formalized and institutionalized as a set of doctrines yeah, and dogmas exactly. and Because you're also moving out of living memory. So, yeah. you,
1: so you're now having to exactly try and recreate what was a sort of a phenomenological experience into a belief, which is a sort of a, a different thing. And then, so dogmas spring up and practices spring up and, and then that becomes institutionalized and that becomes powerful and that becomes politicized and so on. And now what you end up with is, which is what I instinctively balked against as a fresh atheist, is something that I still feel feel is still badly, and no longer does, but badly trying to articulate, pointing back to a feeling of transcendence and the importance of finding transcendence somewhere. And I think that's yeah, but they're, important.
0: Yeah, they're just doing it more or less ineptly, yeah, and yeah. it's it's freighted with so many other ideas that produce unnecessary suffering for people. Yeah. that it's just it's a horror and show in the end. In I, mean, the just, I mean, just look yeah. at
1: but there's basic urges to kind of transform our lives into which or to and to transcend and to which generally get poured into, I guess, money, fame, those sorts of things mm. that we think will do it. Are essentially still, you know, they're kind of religious urges, aren't they? I, I think that's, I think that that need to to transcend, and maybe it's just part of.
0: So, but when you say the need to transcend,
1: yeah, to to get out of your own ego, you know, if the first the first half of life, I guess, is
0: it's about becoming somebody.
1: Well, we've we've absorbed these narratives, we've absorbed these powerfully charged ideas when we're young about who we are and what our relationship is to the world how powerful we are or are not and we've adapted to those because we're adapting creatures and then we've gone through life playing those out these historically charged clusters of energy that we brought into our relationships and played out the maybe the parental sort of imager or the parental kind of you know relationship we played out again again in our adult romantic relationships or we we sought the same things we found the same patterns again and again and then i think sort of in middle age so i'm 47 now i think you start to kind of it's like that's that's run out like you've done that Mm. done that for a long time and i think i think it's you know time to become aware of well what am i authentically if i'm not if i'm not just playing out these these uh these misconstrue these misunderstandings or these you know these messages that I've been given and I've you know I've I've absorbed. We, wh- who are we authentically? And and somehow I think if you don't face those questions, then you've kind of run out of, run out of these ideas, and the second half of life mm. can become difficult. And I think you know some sort of mindfulness is important. I think some kind of tracing back of what are the repetitive patterns in my life and where do they where do they go back? And are there other options? Are there other possibilities? But this is all it's all a sort of transcendence, isn't it? It's all a sort of stepping outside of these comfortable patterns that are just playing out again and again, as I think they do in the first half of life, and seeing if there's other possibilities. And I guess as a, I don't know, as a, as a magician, we magicians fit comfortably into that kind of sort of hole that's left. I'm sort of changing subject now, I suppose, with mm. the... Cultural. Well, well
0: you, could, you could fit comfortably into the other hole. You could start your own religion if you just wouldn't admit the mechanisms you were using. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. You tell me. Is it far-fetched to think that, that there could have been charlatans 2,000 years ago who had a truly sophisticated understanding of stage magic that would explain the effect they had on people? Or is this too recent? a human invention for anyone 2,000 years ago to have been a good magician. I don't know, just
1: to go back to the the oracle at Delphi, there was clearly some sort of trickery involved, you know, in terms of how this...
0: Well, maybe not, because in that case, you're talking about, well, you, you could be talking about people using psychedelics as well, but in the context of a culture where people believe in magic and they believe in otherworldly explanations for everything that's happening to then just tell them give them yet more of that explanatory hardware you're not going up against any inborn or conditioned skepticism you're not meeting skeptics for the most part you're not meeting people who have a modern evidentiary criteria at all and so to tell them that the sky god demands x y and z you're meeting the most suggestible, confirmationally sort of biased of people on for, earth, right? Ma-
1: imagine yeah. the kind of frame of belief it was. So, we it's so easy to think back as ourselves now, and, and right. think back and you're meeting it's just, the children. A, such a different world. You're meeting the yeah.
0: children of human history, right? Yeah. I mean, this was there was no science in most of these contexts. It's just the idea of disconfirming a hypothesis mm. or running an experiment. It's all of this is. I mean, we have a kind of commonsensical, natural aptitude for some of this, right? Like, if you want to see what's on the other side of a wall, you get up and look, mm. right? But I think it would be very easy to perpetuate a belief in magic in a world where everyone already believes in magic.
1: Mm. Except, of course, so many, so many of those stories of the miracles and so on seem to be this, the so things that have... So that's my question. Is, is there,
0: for instance, do, do you know the... Um, When did he die? I think he died about five years ago. But the the South Indian guru Sai Baba, are you aware of him? with with the giant afro, yeah. yeah. So he was—he clearly, I I think he—he's known to have had some background as a a stage magician, and you you can see him on YouTube. You know, palming. He his his act was often to materialize uh, vibhuti, the sacred ash, Mm. from his hands. He would just come by and you know, and move his fingers and. Just magically, this ash would rain down, and he would also materialize pendants and other jewelry for his Mm. his, certain of his devotees. And you you can see him, you know, palming things and going back to some you know table or urn that he was being handed and retrieving some object from you know its base. He's a an awkward magician, right?
1: Which is normally the giveaway, isn't it? And it's the same with with the faith healers and others. If you uh... Or psychic mediums, when, when, there's a, when there's a trick involved, when they're hot reading as opposed to cold reading, when they're just passing mm. off information they already know, as opposed to right. just saying stuff and making it fit, then you kind of go, okay, well, then they're the tricks, as opposed to, the, you know, sincerely believe but are deluded. But I, I, I think even that sort of binary distinction is, is not really, I don't know if it really represents the kind of, our capacity for Cognitive dissonance and some oh, no. justification I mean, it's yeah, just, no, it, it just, doesn't. know that yeah. they're
0: two separate tracks that you yeah. could be running on simultaneously, but one can leverage the other considerably. So, yeah. I guess, so someone with your skill at misdirection mm. or close-up magic—I mean, just the fact that you can remove somebody's watch and pocket it as you're talking to them, and then hand it back to them and say, oh, you, "You're missing your watch." Mm. You must know enough about the history of magic to have some sense of when certain effects were. First achieved, right, and then it would be implausible to think that seven hundred years ago someone could do that thing as well as the thing that you know Houdini did for the first time or David Blaine did for the yeah, first well, time. Yeah, well,
1: I'm I'm not much of a scholar, but of the uh, history of magic, but I think most of Western secular theatrical magic comes out of those sort of traditions. So I think it's it's you know as we lose as we lose touch with the kind of cultural myths that you know. Where all that magic has its place, it becomes this, you know, vaudevillian thing. But it's born. I think it's born out of the same as a, you know, a line that goes yeah. right back through all of that. So I,
0: a lot of it could have been done two thousand years ago. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, I do. But I, I don't, I don't look at the, you know, the story of Christ and think, oh, well, that's no, no here's no, how no, he palmed no, the world Nor do I. I don't, think, yeah. I don't think that's what's going on at all. I think well, no,
0: I mean, just just to be clear, I, I think they're obviously extraordinarily. Transformative experiences people can have, yeah, and having had them, I mean, then they're the outliers who have them in such a way that they're radically transformed, and mm. people can mm. tell. You get around some of these people, and you know, I've had my fair share of opportunity to be with the far outliers of spiritual athletes. I mean, people who spent you know twenty years on silent meditation retreats, and you know, as many years in. Caves. And I mean, these are mostly Tibetan practitioners, but I've been with, I've just met extraordinary people in, in several different traditions at this point. And, you know, leaving their religious worldviews aside, I mean, the, these efforts are almost always made in the context of some kind of religious mm-hmm. worldview. These are not secular meditation adepts, but they're clearly people who can develop an extraordinary degree of compassion and a seemingly supernatural lack of self concern so what you feel in their presence is a free attention that until you've noticed it in them you know recognize that you have never seen this in somebody else a free right? attention what do you Yeah like though? so like so i mean just to be with someone who has absolutely no concern for what you think of them they're not reading in your reaction to them any possible deficit in them right mm and this you know as described this can also sound like psychopathy but marry that to just total goodwill and interest mm. in you and your suffering all they want is for you to be happy then they they want nothing from you right so you can meet people like this the classic example would be somebody in a buddhist context who has spent just a ton of time practicing what's called loving kindness meditation where they're just they're spending all their time trying to Maximize the emotion of just wishing people happiness and freedom from suffering. And every time their mind wanders to anything else, you know, a thought of lunch mm. or their, you know, memory of yesterday, or they come back to this feeling, which may, you know, many of us who have done MDMA or otherwise known as ecstasy have touched this feeling, you know, pharmacologically, mm. where it's just suddenly you're plunged into a kind of well of positive social affect mm. that is just so much better than where you tend to be, Mm -hmm. which is kind of neurotically self-referential in dialogue with other Mm -hmm. people, you know, with strangers or friends. And, you know, and occasionally you punch through to a kind of a new level of love and uncomplicated engagement with somebody, you know, even, you know, it could be a person you're meeting for the first time. But. The common experience on mdma is to just get shoved in that direction further than you ever really dreamed was possible and there are meditative analogs to that and and loving kindness is Mm -hmm. one but so you can meet people who just they're not collapsing back on themselves in a way that you again i mean the the experience for me was came pretty vividly with this one teacher i met in india named punjaji and it helped he spoke perfect English, so you know. In many of these circumstances, you're working through a translator, yeah. and so your your attention is divided. You know, you've got the, the meditation master you're talking to there, but you've got the translator over here. It's distracting. And with Pundaraj, he spoke perfect English, so you just there's nothing to do but look in his eyes the whole time. And he was somebody who never collapsed back on himself in a way that you, again, my experience was seeing something. A, absent in him that had been present in basically every other pair of eyes I've ever looked into, you know, certainly adult eyes. So having met people like that who are shockingly charismatic in this one way, in this kind of special way, which seems to connect with an extraordinarily benign and you know positive ethical engagement with other people. And again, there's, I need to Assure my atheist friends that I'm aware of all the ways in which this can be fraudulent and Mm. misused, and there are people who can fake this, and Mm. all of that's true, right? But it's also just a fact that you can find people who are, as I've said before, they're like the tiger woods of compassion, the far outlier of these positive mental states. And there's something amazingly compelling about that, Mm. which explains the cult-like following that somebody like Jesus, say, whoever he actually was, could have had. It's no surprise to me that you could start a religion around a sufficiently compelling demonstration of this personal change Mm, that could have come in any one life, and you only need a couple of dozen of these people in history to take it to some great extent to explain what we have now, which is the the terrifying residue of, of all of those spiritual efforts. Yeah. You know. I wonder All if, right.
1: if it, part of it, as you're describing it, sounds like a kind of comfort with a, with a, a sort of an, uh, an open system of being as opposed to a closed system. And that I, I think we, particularly in these kind of, you know, tribal polarized times, we are hugely uncomfortable with ambivalence and uncomfortable with the fact that life is not only complex and messy and ambiguous, but also that the things that we reduce to nouns, like happiness and and probably even the self, are just are, are actually active. They're verbs. They're yeah. things. They're, yeah. process, they're They're doing things, aren't they? Exactly. And uh, that's a, it's an un, it's an uncomfortable thing to remain open to. And as you were describing that, it, it sort of it because that is just part of growing up, isn't it? Part of growing up is is tolerating ambiguity, surely. And even in a in a conversation with uh, with people as you describing those those characters, it feels even there like it's just a, it's a an, an open. We're we're just we're not open to people. We're you know we're constantly, you know, worrying about what we're going to say next or what you know and so on. And just it's an interesting uh, interesting effect if that is a big part of it, just to you know the effect that it can have of just being. And people uh, being experience
0: this. Change in themselves situationally. So, you know, people go to Burning Man and, you know, leaving aside the drugs involved, which I actually I haven't been to Burning Man, but I've heard that psychedelics are more or less on every page of the menu. But just putting yourself in a context that is outside mm. your normal routine can suddenly make a far wider and, and, and more positive range of emotion available to you. And this happens when people go on retreat. This happens when even just travel to a foreign country. I mean, part of the the, the reset psychologically that many people experience traveling is that you, I mean, you go to you know some faraway place like India, where everything is different. The smells mm-hmm. are different. The colors are different. The sounds are different. And your expectations of just how an hour on earth should pass mm-hmm. are different. And you're not I mean, you might have some touristic agenda or not, but you can really be kind of lifted out of yourself by travel because you don't have all of these touch points of your routine. And then you you meet someone in a cafe and you're available to talk to a stranger in a way that you aren't in your hometown Mm. at all. And most of us move through life fairly guarded and we're just busy, we're in a rush. Just adding the fact that you're in a rush Changes everything, Mm. you know, and it's interesting to think about consciously resetting some of these things. To yeah, not just
1: resetting, but also just expanding the imagination, because ultimately, it's only your imagination that's gonna that you have to make these choices. And if your imagination expands, your number of choices expands. So as you as you try and you know face the mysterious aspects of of life and and grow and grow up and and um do these sorts of things well you need to be able to make more and more choices so yeah it's mm. again it's just it's it's it is it's comfort with it's comfort with openness and not just we just always looking to for things to close down and feedback to us what we what we already know and I, that's just yeah. uh,
0: that's the antithesis of the religiously doctrinaire authoritarian attitude mm. what you just described being comfortable with not knowing mm. right which this yes, is a, the
1: anxiety that that is yeah, the anxiety but, of your when your your authority system is doesn't doesn't have the answers,
0: yeah that creates the, yeah. the fundamentalism. And it, ironically, that the science is often billed as the one that's not comfortable with not knowing. But science, I mean, science is the, this mm. in practice just the admission of how much we don't know and being comfortable with the the open endedness of our inquiry. There are a million things we're busily trying to find out, but at the frontier of any question you could pose, there is just this very clear encounter with human ignorance, which mm. you have to be comfortable with. I mean, this is just, this is our circumstance perpetually. Well, listen, this has been great to finally connect with you on the podcast.
1: Well, thank you for, uh, this has been my a lovely welcome to uh, to LA. And yeah. uh, it's an honor to be here as a big fan yeah. of your podcast. It's very exciting to sit here. and see how it all works
0: yeah yeah i hear a rumor that you're thinking about uh doing a podcast yourself
1: i have been thinking about doing a podcast yeah. myself yes i think that would be an interesting thing uh to do so we'll have to uh after this nice talk about how it all works yeah yeah you we'll tell do. me your secrets tell you mine
0: cool well until next time
1: thank you for having me